So, Bob, I'm glad everything worked out. We had a chance to get you on the show. Welcome to the Mentors Military Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here and looking forward to talking about your past. It's a delight. Thank you. So I, I know that um, very early on that you went into um, BUDS Class 81, but there's a little bit of a history that goes on a bit before that that I'd like you to dive into. So when was it that you ended up thinking about the military and going down that route? Well, it happened in my bedroom in Pensacola, Florida at 16 years old. I didn't know you were from Pensacola. Wait, wait. Oh, so I'm I went from, to high school. I went to Milton. Get out. I'm from Milton. <laughs> right down the road. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm pretty sure we played you in football. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. No, that was that was my high school years. And, uh, and I was sitting in my room reading a Reader's Digest and stumbled across an article called Super Commandos of the Wetlands. And it was telling that the existence of a previously secret organization called the U.S. Navy SEALs. And I went, oh, my, I think I'm going to do that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I was telling you earlier, I come from five generations of career military, but I did not plan to be the fifth. And uh, but I walked into my dad's office, said, Dad, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. He didn't know what that was. But and I said, I want to go to the Naval Academy. He goes, I know what that is, son. How can I help? And um, it didn't hurt that my grandfather was a three-star and uh, ex-superintendent of the Naval Academy. But uh, I literally found myself at 17 years old, raising my right hand and swearing into the Navy as a midshipman in the U.S. Naval Academy class of 73. I was just getting ready to say 73. So you ended up getting a BS in engineering and international relations, it sounds like. That's um, correct. And... You asked me earlier, and I'll answer the question now, you know, did I go right into the SEAL teams? And my class back then uh, had three slots available to go to SEAL training direct from the academy. Uh, one of them was Eric Olson, my classmate, who went on to become the first four-star Navy SEAL in history. And he got one of them because he's way smarter than me. And, um, you know, I was about middle of the class. And when time came for me to go, those slots were gone so I picked a destroyer out of San Francisco called the USS Hamner DD-718 and found myself with orders to the West Coast. But right at graduation, all academy guys are given 30 days of basket leave, they call it. And um, I used that with 12 of my classmates to go down to Key West, Florida and go to the underwater swimmers school and at least get my third class scuba divers pin on my uniform. <laughs> and while I was there, one of the uh, in diving instructors was a Navy SEAL enlisted man by the, Adam, by the name of Adams also, by the way, no relation. And he came up to me and goes, you know, Mr. Adams, you've been here for like three of the four weeks and we're trying to hurt you and you are having way too much fun. Have you ever thought about being a Navy SEAL? And I went, funny you should mention it. But at the Naval Academy, nobody would encourage me down that pathway. It was not a career path that officers back then chose because there was no senior officers that, that were, you know, in the special operations world. So I said, well, thank you for reminding me of my dream, but I got to go to a destroyer first. And, uh, and it, you know, it kept in the back of my mind, it kind of reignited the goal. And one year later, a very famous Navy SEAL by the name of Lieutenant Scotty Lyons, who led the infamous barefoot patrol in Vietnam came through San Francisco recruiting for SEALs. And I'd been on that ship a year and uh, disliked it immensely. <laughs> <laughs> and I got this Navy message going, there's tryouts for Navy SEALs tomorrow at the big gym on base. I went, boss, got to go. And uh, he said, okay, permission granted. And I went, well, thank I'm glad you said that because otherwise I'd be AWOL. <laughs> then, uh, now, was, were the, the officer program starting up at that time frame then? You know, so a year later, this thing started getting rolling along with the, the officer no, program? Okay. No, not at all. Um, even in the 70s, this is post-Vietnam now. Yeah. Um, you know, all my instructors, I ended up, Bud's class of 81 graduated in um, April of 1974, five, 1974. We started in October of 74. Graduated in April 75. So two, really three years after the Vietnam conflict had wound down, all of our instructors were um, superstars. You know, matter of fact, one of them was Mike Thornton, a Medal of Honor winner, who uh, was our class's first senior instructor. And uh, he uh, and, and Navy Star, I mean, Navy Cross, Silver Star members were who 
taught us how to be SEALs, but there was still no career for officers above the rank of Captain 06. Mm, okay. And so, you know, there no nobody had ever made Admiral wearing a SEAL Budweiser on their chest. So, and there were only two captains, one on each coast. So you got, you know, the chances of us, you know, retiring as an Admiral were zero at that time, but we had jobs that, and, I, and I've said this many times, and I wrote it in my first book, that it's a, without a doubt being a platoon commander of a Navy SEAL platoon is the best job I ever had or ever will have. Just an amazing amount of fun. And I don't care whether they paid me or not. How, how was it being trained by Vietnam veterans? Because I know when I came in, I came in, you know, about six years after you, uh, seven years after you, and during that time frame, just seeing... Um, the knowledge and the experience that these guys were bringing to the table. I mean, one of those took me under his wing and was uh, really probably the mentor that helped me propel, you know, in, within the military, especially as a non-commissioned officer. I, I really credit him for a lot of the early management and leadership skills that he provided because he placed that sense of urgency, you know, on each of us that he led. So I'm curious, you know, within your buds training and in your early parts of your career there, how much of an influence those guys, especially on SEAL teams, um, really had? Well, the influences are huge. A lot of people don't know this, but all the instructors in SEAL training are enlisted. And the you know, when I first reported a training, there were eight officers out of the 70 of us that were starting. And a, and a senior chief pulled us all eight aside and said, listen up, boys, gentlemen, sirs. Um, this is an enlisted run organization and we're going to be watching you to be able to do what your classmates do, but also demonstrate the ability to lead us into war. And, you know, I'm looking at his Navy cross going, say what <laughs> you want me to do? What brand new O one. And he goes, and he says, but, but let me be clear. If at any point in time during training, any instructor is not willing to, to put his classmates in your hands and lead them into combat, you'll be gone the next day. So I went, oh crap. And only three of the eight of us made it. And I love I love telling this, this story. And I, I write this with some emotion in my book. On graduation day, you know, I was still a, a young ensign and there were three of the eight of us left, only 11 of the 70 of us that made it. And that officer stood at the end of the welcome line and saluted me and said, welcome to the teams. Wow. And it goes down as one of the great moments of my life, bar none, because I knew what he had done and I had done none of that. And I knew what he meant to say, I'm trusting you with my men's lives. You've proven yourself to me that you can learn young man. And, um, and, and, and it really worked out well. Those, those, um, Chief Petty Officers and First Class Petty Officers became, you know, members of my platoon later on, and we had a ball together. And I, and I, and they'd already knew that I would listen when they talked. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you were one of the early trailblazers then, you know, in terms of officers getting into SEAL teams, and how much of an impact did that make? And you know, did was there a lot of stuff that you guys had to start uh, modifying or changing as it relates to officers on SEAL teams? So, uh, as I said, the instructors were all enlisted, but all of the SEAL teams had, you know, an 05 commanding officer, and they had operations officers and platoon commanders, and, you know, we were 01s and 02s as platoon commanders, so there was always an officer enlisted structure once you made it out of training, and, you know, basic budge is six months long, and then you go back to a team, and you do another, back then, we did another six months of platoon training, and you didn't put on your Budweiser saying you're a fully qualified SEAL until that team of officers and enlisted men said, yeah, he can stay. Oh, wow. And that was a big deal. Now, by the way, the training pipeline keeps the trainee at Coronado at the training center for that entire first year. Bud still ends at six months and you're, you know, you're graduated but you remain where you are for six more months of organized training with the instructors. And uh, then at the end of that year, your well, it actually ends up being 14 or 15 months. Then you leave there with your Budweiser and you go to your team. And then you begin SEAL basic indoctrination and additional training. But, but, but all the parachuting, advanced diving, advanced weapons, patrolling, all the things that you would have learned 
in a team environment are now done and controlled to a single standard. It's a much better way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you ended up spending 14 years then within SEAL teams? So 12, uh, 14 years in the Navy on active duty uh, at 12 of, because there's a year and a half on a oh, ship. Oh, that's true. Okay, yeah, so, the year so and a half. 12 in the SEAL teams, and yeah. I, had, I had just made full commander as executive officer of one of the reserve SEAL teams on the East Coast when I accepted a scholarship to go to medical school on an Army scholarship. And I the, la- the, the first and last time I wore my full commander's dress white uniform was the day that I raised my right hand and swore into the Army as an Army second lieutenant. Oh, because we got to back up, though. How in the world did you get an Army scholarship going to medical school? So thank you. Everybody always asks that very <laughs> question. <laughs> you know, I I need to tell you more about my Navy time. Mm-hmm. Naval Academy graduates have a five-year obligated service. And at the end of that five years of obligated service, I was a lieutenant 03, you know, and I just transitioned from my platoon, greatest job in the world, into a staff officer's position and a ComNav Spec War Group 1. And I kept thinking, you know, we're in a drawdown. The money is getting shorter. We can't travel. We can't buy bullets. Maybe there's something else that I ought to do with my life. And I decided to transfer to the reserve SEAL teams, which sent me to the East Coast, and go back to school and get a master's in business because I could live on the GI Bill at the time. And I arrived in, in Virginia, had been there six months working for a living, picked up a phone, called the Navy, said, I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> Hey, they don't give you 30 days of free vacation out here and you're going to pay for your health insurance. Bring me back. <laughs> and, and, and interestingly, my answer was not real encouraging. Well, Lieutenant, we're still in a drawdown here and we don't need more SEALs. So stay in the reserve. And we'll call you if you need me. I went, dang, I, you know, I made a horrible mistake. And so that led me over time to explore what I was going to have to do with the rest of my life. And I finished my MBA degree. You know, I was still drilling down in Little Creek with the teams and having jumping and diving and having the fun times. But went to work in Washington, D.C. as a new MBA with, with, with one child uh, and one on the way when I came home and said, sweetheart, I don't like my job. You know, MBA is all about money. Money has no morals and ethics. I miss, you know, the fun I used to have. I want it again, and they won't take me back. So I want to go to med school. <laughs> See, what? Yeah, 30 years old with one and a half children. And I go, yeah, well, they probably won't take me. I'm too old anyway. But I got to try. So the way the system works is you have to apply to a medical school. And if you get accepted, then and only then you can apply to the military for a scholarship. So I I went back to school at night. I'm working full-time during the day, and I spent the next two years at school at night retaking all of my prerequisites for physics and chemistry and biochemistry. Finally got qualified to take the MCATs, got that done, applied to 11 schools, got interviews from three, got accepted to one, and bam, as soon as I got that, I fired off a scholarship request to the Navy and the Army and said, take me, I'm yours. And I, by the way, I just made commander in the SEAL teams. And the Navy came back and said, all right, we'll take you. You got a three-year scholarship. And the Army came back and said, all right, we'll take you. We'll give you a four-year scholarship. <clears throat> no brainer. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I got two kids now. And uh, the med school at Wake Forest University yes. is uh, $55,000 a year now. Ooh. So... I went to the Navy in my dress blues with the scholarships in hand. I said, match the Army's offer. And they said, nah, you didn't qualify. So, well, hope we serve together one day. But when we do, it'll be in an Army uniform. (laughs) And that really did work out. I've always said there's an angel on my shoulder. And they they allow things to happen that should happen. You know, I was a little irritated. But even if I had stayed in the Navy, I would have dropped back down to an 01. Because you don't go through med school as a lieutenant colonel or a commander. And um, because you got to start over again in the medical corps and, you know, be stupid and learn all the things that you need to learn as a doctor. So that's what happened. And I uh, graduated my medical school and went to Madigan Army Medical Center in Washington State, which was the best family practice program the Army had to offer. And, you know, and I 
I pulled a few strings because it's, you know, it's easier when you're an O1, but you used to be an O5. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know your way around the system better. And, uh, and that helped me get the residency program I wanted. And when it came to three years later, to ask for my first, you know, duty assignment as now a board certified uh, physician, Fort Bragg was the only place in the Army that jumped out of airplanes. And I'd been jumping out of airplanes for 20, well, 15 years. And they said, sure, come on, let's go. <laughs> Showed up at Fort Bragg as a, a interesting. Most doctors, you know, go through med schools as O1s. They graduate as O3s. But I graduated as an O4 because they gave me half credit for promotion. Uh, so that's a, that's the interesting thing I wanted to get back to. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because you were what rank when you got out of the Navy? O5? O5. And then you go all the way back down to O1 in the Army. So there was no, like, you know, we'll take you from five to three discussion or anything like that. It's No, that's and that's a congressional mandate for all services. Wow. If you go from a combat armed service to a non-combat armed service, lawyer or dentist or doctor, you start over again at 01. Now, you don't lose your years of service. Sure, Those sure. go away, but you lose those years for rank as an officer. You know, that, you know. that had to kill you for pay, though. Not it's just not that. Me. Oh, yeah, yeah, I took a big ticket. <laughs> but again, I got a job that I loved. And it, you know, looking back on 33 years as a doctor now, I will tell you, that angel was on my shoulder. I didn't know if I was going to love medicine, but I did. It was absolute, the same kind of joy that I had as a SEAL platoon commander, where every morning was fun to wake up to. So you get assigned September or so of 1991. You end up going to Fort Bragg, and you, you command various clinics and full-service family practitioner, providing inpatient, outpatient, what, obstetric, obstetric, I can't even say that word. Obstetrics, obstetrician. Yeah, I can't leave. I'm delivering babies and I'm doing surgeries and um, and and I got to tell you this. It was actually '94 because you skipped my three years of residency. So I show up in (laughs) September of '94, and people that might know their military history know that a month or two later, I got a knock on the door that said, "Hey, you're jump requalified, right?" Uh, well, we're invading Haiti, and you're in jump aircraft number one with the 82nd Airborne Division. I went, what? 3,500 soldiers loaded onto 64 jump aircraft, and I'm, you know, and I'm running around as a major with a master parachutist badge on my on my doctor's uniform. So everybody thinks, you know, I know what I'm doing, and I had to go to the lieutenant colonel that's invading Haiti with me. I go, sir, I really don't know what I'm supposed to do when we hit the ground. Can you give me a clue? <laughs> and he goes, I've only been a doctor here for two months. He goes, yeah, just keep me alive. Okay, I can do that. So that was my job. And the little known bit of history about the U.S. military invading Haiti is that we launched, middle of the night, 3,500 paratroopers on 64 jump aircraft, fully loaded with equipment and bear. And halfway there, Colin Powell's negotiated a surrender from the president of Haiti, and they turned us all around and brought us back. (laughs) So... We did not invade Haiti. I do remember that. To take over that island. I remember, I can't remember who it was that I had on the podcast that talked about that and how everybody was pumped up and everything. You're in this hot aircraft and then you have to turn around and come back. Yeah. Yeah. And I still believe that the president should have given us a presidential unit citation because as far as I see it, we won that war without firing a shot. All Kyle had to say to the president was, Two hours ago, the 82nd Airborne launched. And when they get here, we're going to kill you. (laughs) And that's pretty close to where the conversation went. Wow. So you come back from that mission then, I guess um, I did skip over the whole internship and stuff. So what did you you end up doing uh, initially? Family practice was my residency of choice. Uh, And that was... That, that was really a wonder. I tell people this all the time. Family practice in the military, because we don't have the malpractice issues of lawyers telling us what you can and cannot do, we're allowed to do it all. We deliver our own babies. We follow our kids from birth, womb to tomb care, I call it. And, and I was able to do anything and everything. I would scrub in on my orthopedic surgeries. I would be there for the C-section, the appendicitis, in the emergency room for traumas and casualties and, you know, what happened right after I arrived at Fort Bragg was the Delta Force people came knocking on my door because people started talking about this Army doctor running around with a Navy SEAL patch on his uniform. 
with this great big gaudy patch, you know, and <laughs> went, who is that guy? And I literally walked in and you went, knock, knock, knock. Uh, about that patch on your chest. Is that real? <laughs> is that real? Yeah. First question. Well, yeah. And they go, okay, want to come play with us? And I went, actually, no, you know, been there, done that. Um, I'm a brand new doctor. I'm in a teaching staff. I got babies to deliver. I need to get better at what I do. And so I worked the emergency rooms and the teaching and the, the baby delivering. And I got good at what I do. And two years later, how about now? And I went, now's good. And so I ended up being the command surgeon for the Army's Delta Force for three and a half years. And, you know, made lieutenant colonel while I was there and did fast deployment operations with them and, you know, delivered their babies and, you know, took care of their casualties. And, you know, for about three and a half years, when one of my soldiers would get hurt, which was not actually an infrequent thing, given the tempo training that they did in that unit, you know, I'd run into the emergency room and the whole place would stop. Oh, crap. Adams is here. Something's coming. (laughs) (laughs) You can keep them there. Yeah. Okay. What do you got? I got, a, I got somebody coming in and I'm going to need an orthopedic surgeon here right now. But, so it was a you know, great adventure for me. And we, we had, you know, wartime uh, missions that are be still classified for 50 more years that I can look back with pride and go, wow, that was cool. Yeah. But I just made full bird colonel when hadn't even pinned it on yet. When I moved to back to a command position on Fort Bragg, as a clinic commander, and again, I pulled some strings here. Well, I didn't pull strings. I used the Army's rules to my benefit. The One of the advantages of being assigned to any of these Tier 1 Special Operations units is that when you finish the tour, you're granted the assignment of your choice. Where do you want to go? When I had kids now in high school, and I, you know, I came to Fort Bragg, I PCS to Fort Bragg, and then I PCS back to Fort Bragg. <laughs> And the army goes, oh, you tricked us. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got kids in high school. I want them to stay here. Find me a job. Yeah. And so I took over a command of the Robinson Health Clinic, which can take care of 48,000 patients of the 82nd Airborne and their families. Was really enjoying that when I get another knock. Uh, Sir, we need you in Iraq now because we're heading out. So I ended up as a full bird colonel being given the opportunity to stay back and send one of my junior officers forward. But, uh, you know, the word had already hit the streets that this will be the last of the six-month combat deployments for doctors, and after that will be one year. And for the record, despite my experience, combat sucks. I didn't want to play that game longer than I needed to, and I took that assignment as a full bird uh, commanding one of the clinics over there and uh, it ended up being a, a marvelous experience with some horrible things that a doctor would never want to see, multiple gunshot wounds, mass casualties, that sort of thing. But I look back on it as one of the greater experiences I ever had as a family physician to have to deal with those level of trauma. But because I was military trained, and I, this is an important point, I was able to do it. Mm-hmm. A civilian doctor in my position couldn't have done it. But the military trained me well, and you know, I actually halfway through the deployment got called to Baghdad, and they, I got this call going, hey, Colonel, we need a Colonel here because we just got a $250,000 grant from the Agency for International Development to bring modern medicine to Iraq, the country. And uh, we held a four-day conference using that money up to teach 700 doctors from the country of Iraq who had been shut down from information for the 25 years of Saddam Hussein's reign. And we, 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 I flew in 32 doctors from around the country in England, taught the, that country's doctors what had changed in 25 years. Look back on it and go, wow. You know, we literally changed the face of a nation in four days. Yeah, yeah. Created the uh, first medical organizations of uh, physicians there. Yes, yes, absolutely correct. The, uh, I've got the plaque right here and it says, uh, the society, uh, the, what is it? the specialty society of a new home for the Iraq world. And, uh, and it was, it was just a, a brilliant way. You know, they didn't have an AMA. They didn't have any organization. They, they weren't allowed to leave the country cause they wouldn't come back. And so 
you know, they formed a, their own Iraqi AMA and, and it's still thriving today. How were the, the experiences that you had within Delta? Um, how, did, how much did that help you in helping the physicians that were on the ground at that time frame, early days, Iraq, you know, and, and treating, you know, some of the, the battle casualties and everything? I mean, did you find that your experience there was just invaluable and, and really helped you bring other uh, peers up to speed? Yeah, three monstrously amazing opportunities were made available to me when I was with Delta. A lot of people know this, a lot of people do not, but our tier one units, SEAL Team 6 and Delta, have unlimited budgets. Spend what you need to do to accomplish your mission, because we're going to ask you to take out Osama bin Laden and, and Saddam Hussein one day, which we both, which, you know, each team did. But since I had unlimited assets, I would go every six months down to Charity Hospital in New Orleans with one of my medics or two, and we would do gunshot wound training down there every six months because mm. 10 or 12 gunshot wounds every night. And I'm a family doc, and I got a you know medic who's an 18 Delta. And we got to deal with real gunshot wounds, real casualty. You know, for a level, for the specialties that we were and the experience that we were given, that was invaluable, and we used it in Iraq. Another one that was was equally amazing was the, uh, the the chance to train the medics up to a level that most medics don't get trained. I had uh, one of the senior uh, uh, command sergeant major actually of one of the, not the, the command sergeant major, but the sergeant major of one of the operational platoons said, sir, my medics are very well trained, but what are we gonna do if my medic is the casualty? I went, oh, would you be willing to let us train your your soldiers to that level of airway breathing and circulation? He goes, would you please? And so we implemented a program there that trained every single operator. And by the way, this is going on now in the Rangers. Mm -hmm. They've been doing amazing things. They're training all of their soldiers with airway breathing circulation, and they're even carrying transfusion kits in their uniforms. If you're an O negative blood person, you got a transfusion kit in your leg and it's being given in the field under fire. Yeah. Now, the reason I like telling that story is two years after I left Delta, the command sergeant major came to me and said, I don't know if you saw the news doc, but you know, a 600 pound bomb just got dropped on friendly forces and that was us. And the most serious casualties were our two medics on the ground. And just for the record, your program saved their lives. Wow. <laughs> No kidding, because we took care of our medics. Yeah, so good. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just did a, a podcast taping at 75th Ranger Regiment with their medical section and talked about the medical pipeline, you know, and the medic pipeline that they have and uh, the training that they receive and, and that very thing that you just described and how the, the medics, you know, are training now over and over again, every person within the regiment to really be proficient in that skill. You know, it's amazing. We've come a long way. Yeah, a long yeah. ways. Yeah. So after that time frame, what did you end up doing when you came back from uh, Iraq? So I come back from Iraq, and it was it was getting close to retirement time. And you know, my wife from the day I got commissioned kept saying, "Get out, get out, get out. Go be a civilian doctor, make more money." And I kept saying, "Sweetheart, do the math and look what a colonel's retirement pay is." and tell me if I should stay for 20 or try to save that much money. Yeah. They stay in. <laughs> Can't be done. So even though, you know, you're paid less in the military, uh, even as a colonel, you, you, you make more money outside. You can't save the kind of money that a 20-year that that retirement check brings. So sure, sure. I ended up taking uh, charge of the de Department of Deployment Health for my final two-year tour before retirement, and that was uh, – operating the physical exam system and the disability system and what took care of soldiers coming and going from deployment. And it was a wonderful learning experience. And I've, I've used it uh, as a civilian doctor over the years, helping doctors with their dis or patients with their disability systems, because it, it's tricky, the VA system's tricky. And I'm on a board of directors now for a Veterans Life Center just north of Raleigh in Butner, which just opened this year to allow up to 100 male and female veterans to find a place to live for two years while we train them for a next career. We get them a security 
uh, I'm sorry, the training they need for a next job. And they've got drug and alcohol abuse centers right near us, psychiatric hospital right near us. And so it's the first of the VA's uh, test centers to see if the veteran system can manage its own veterans and build a future for them. Mm. So it's kind of exciting to watch that happen. No, no doubt. So I guess it was around this time frame or what, around uh, 2000. Eight, I guess it was something around that time frame that you decided to get out or 2006? 2006. Okay. That's a 20 year mark. And, you know, again, I was a staff officer, but I still did half my time seeing patients and ER stuff and delivering babies, but it was time. And I went to work in Fayetteville for the biggest family practice group there because they actively recruited me. And, and I, I was there for about a month and I came home to my wife. I said, this isn't going to work. <laughs> What do you mean? I said, I'm the junior doctor in their organization oh and they don't listen to me. And I've been a clinic commander my entire career and I don't like not being listened to. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to find another option. At about that same time, an unsolicited letter arrived going, we've got this clinic in the Raleigh area that doesn't have a doctor and needs one. And we'll just give it to you if you want it. Mass mailing. You know, and I looked at it and said, sweetheart, our son lives in Raleigh. What do you think? I go check this out. And, um, and I, I drove up there and I, you know, because I had my MBA before med school, I know how to read a balance sheet. And so I grabbed their clinic numbers and I looked at them and went, oh, they're making money. And, oh, it's just me and a PA. I would be in charge again. Very important. And um, I went home and said, sweetheart, sell the house. We're moving. And she goes, thank you. <laughs> Let's go to Raleigh where our son lives. That and it turned out to be a brilliant solution. Um, the clinic was was troubled when I took it over, but did did very well with the leadership and and um, mentoring that I had learned in the military. And eleven months after I took it over, we won best clinic Eastern Wake County across all the medical specialties. And it, we grew so fast, I had to build a new place. So I. I went to the bank. Now, I understand I'm 50s. I'm in my 55 years old now. And, you know, I'm starting to make money as a civilian doctor more than I did in the military and starting to save a little bit of money. And I go, sweetheart, I think I'd like to go borrow $4 million from the bank, risk everything we own and ever will earn to build a new clinic across the street. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. And the bank said, sure, doc, you're the only doc in town. Go for it. And uh, I brought in some partners and built ground up a 14,000 square foot multi-specialty clinic right on the main drag of town, a little town called Nightdale, North Carolina. So that was the Nightdale Family Medicine Clinic. Okay. Correct. Yeah. It's It's a bedroom community of Raleigh. And it was successful, bless its little heart, from day one. And, uh, and I sold it last year uh, and, and retired from my active daily practice after almost 14 years, you know, taking care of the baby, the baby, the patients in, in Nightdale. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, I retired not because I really wanted to, but because the system was making it hard to have the kind of fun that my whole life has been. You know, my life is just, as I, I just told you, you heard it. Yeah. You know, I had fun in the SEAL teams, you know, fun in the medical world, you know, fun as a civilian in charge. But when, you know, you couldn't be in charge and the system is just beating up doctors on a regular basis, I said, you know, maybe now's a good time to get out and see if there's something else I can do. And I had just published my second book on on doctoring. Now, you have to ask me about my book. Oh, Quick, I will. I will. <laughs> I, I, I want to say, though, because you, you said you retired, but yet, like most of us, you don't really retire. No. And no. yeah, you became the managing director with uh, Victory Strategies, a boutique leadership consultancy. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Oh, that was, that was another fun adventure that is, you know, it's an oh, by the way, because um, I, was, I was still practicing full time. Uh, until one year before I tried when I went halftime, just because I, I could see the handwriting on the wall. Um, and the, the Victory Strategies people are actually leadership and management consultants that are mostly Navy SEALs or special operations folks. And, and they've grown to include men and women and Marines and Air Force folks. And they help Fortune 500 companies and Fortune 100 companies learn leadership and management, the same things that allowed me to take my failing clinic 
and turn it into a success story, we all use the same basic techniques that the leadership skills that the military teaches us. And, 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 and for those that might listen to this podcast and don't, weren't in the military like you and I, you know, they don't understand what you and I do. You come out of the military innately ability to lead people mm -hmm. because of the fact that even at the lowest level and lowest rank, you're leading people. Mm -hmm. And when you come into the civilian world, the big difference that catches a lot of military people by surprise is accomplishing the mission in the civilian world is not as important as making your boss look good. If you want to get ahead in the civilian world, you, no matter what you do, you must credit your boss for it and, you know, be subservient, be supportive and, 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 you know, it's different and, and not get rewarded when you do something special, like fix the broken system because your <laughs> yep. boss did that and your boss's boss did that. And, you know, if you do in the civilian world, like we would do in the military, like, I think I'll go talk to the inspector general and tell him that something's broken, or I think I'll go knock on the commanding officer's door and give him a better idea. You do that in the civilian world, they will punish you. They will punish you hard. <laughs> and so you have to learn that it works differently. It still works, you know, but if you use your chain of command the way you learn, you know, you've always learned and don't go outside of the civilian world can eventually reward you. But, you know, you got to have some difficult times in the process. Yeah. And, and you went also on to serve on a board of directors. And I guess you currently still are with Veterans Life Center, with, which is really providing housing and training for 100 men and women in life transition from the military to uh, finding a secure future. And so commend you there, because I think, um, you know, we've got, as you just talked about, people coming off of active service that are really struggling to find that passion and purpose. And on occasion, they just need a helping hand somewhere here. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Good. I mean, good pickup. And I didn't do it. It was some some good veterans and some veteran advocates worked very, very hard with the state of North Carolina to earn a, a nine million dollar grant to build this facility on donated land in what used to be World War II's Camp Butner area north of Durham, big city where the big VA is. And they gave the money and they've given some supporting operational money and the VA is coming on board and they're trying to help and get this going. And I think we up to 15, our first 15 residents are on board, men and women, and we're growing. And they'll, it'll come in one referral at a time, one patient, you know, one veteran at a time. And we give them a safe place to be well and, and transition into the civilian world. Amazing. Again, like I said, um, there are programs that are out there, nonprofit programs that go out and help veterans. Uh, but I think what you guys are doing is very commendable. And, you know, again, kudos there. And, and for anybody that's looking for additional information, again, that that group is called Veterans Life Center. And, um, you know, we'll try to include some of the information on the show notes or, or something of that nature. Now I want to move on to these books that you uh, publish because, you know, we talk about this amazing career that you had and how you went from the Navy into the Army and, and were willing to make those sacrifices that I don't know that many people would be willing to do from going from an 05 to an 01 again because it was it was really, again, following that purpose or that passion that you already knew that you wanted to create. And so I think it was in two, uh, 2018 you had published the book Six Days of Impossible Navy Sail Hell Week, A, a Doctor's Look Back. Tell us a little bit, a little bit about that. Yeah, that was a fun book that I tried not to write. Uh, you know, Navy SEALs and special ops folks have been prohibited from writing books for, for decades. But then that door cracked open and a lot of books got written. And I was reading, you know, every SEAL book that came out and all of them mentioned Navy SEAL Hell Week because it is a defining point. It's why only 11 out of 70 of us made it through, through SEAL training. But nobody would ever explain what Hell Week was. They were, okay, it's six days, no sleep, soaking wet, freezing cold, shivering uncontrollably for the whole six days. Oh, yeah, you can say that, but it's hard to grasp the level of pain and suffering that that, that comes with. And so, you know, I tried to get other people to write a, a book about Hell Week, and nobody would do it. And I finally said, fine, I'm going to write it. And while I was doctoring, I would write 
one chapter at a time. And the way I decided to do it, and the reason I decided to do it, is that as a doctor, I could look back on the 11 of us and try to find a common theme that we might have shared that allowed us to succeed when 60 other very well-qualified people did not. And because, you know, as a family doctor, I deal with stress and depression and all those issues, and I recognize it in people easily, and I watch how they deal with it. So I went back and interviewed the other 10 members of my class, and I said, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your background. Tell me about your decision to go into the SEAL team training. Tell me why you made it. And, of course, everybody said, I don't know why I made it. Here's my background. So I tell everybody's story. And as it, telling the 11 men's story, myself included, a theme starts to develop. Hey, we all had some similar in, instructions or experiences as a child, as a young adult, you know, and those mostly challenging, mostly difficult failures in our young lives made it easier to go to SEAL training and face the impossible. Because you tell people, I stayed up for six days straight, shivered the whole time, freezing cold. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. I know, it's impossible. But, uh, you know, a lot of us do it, and when it's all done, go, really, that's all you got? <laughs> Life gave me worse than this before. And that was the defining, that was a defining moment. It was that we had seen worse in life from a mentally and physically challenging standpoint than the Navy was legally authorized to give us in SEAL training. Yeah. Wow. And so I wrote know, their story. No, I, I I love the fact that you you captured their stories and you wrote them within the book. And the, not only that, but you found that common theme running throughout the, all those different stories, because I think, you know, oftentimes people listen to these uh, podcasts and they hear from people that were in the soft community or, or did challenging things in inside their career or outside of their their career now. And they wonder what makes me different than some of these people. And what you find sometimes when you start interviewing or talking to individuals, just like business, by the way, there are books out there called Good to Great, where they evaluate what made some companies successful over others. And it's a very similar pattern. You know, um, there's no real secret secrets about it. It's sometimes just the experiences and the way in which they manage those things that uh, help them really get through the hard and difficult times. Yeah, and I'll, I'll brag about one thing. Um, the book's been about over two years now, and it's been made mandatory reading for some of the Navy's uh, training pipelines that get people you know, ready for SEAL teams. So you need to know what you're signing on for. It's not all romance. You know, Dr. Adams tells a pretty good story up close and personal about how hard this is going to be. And, uh, and, and I find that you know, very complimentary. But it, it was it would had to be written. So now if anybody not wants to know what Navy SEAL Hill Week really is, well, that's it. Six days of impossible. Yeah. So you then decided though to go deeper and not just focus on, you know, buds and and uh, you know, those experiences there, but then you decided to do a little bit more of a memoir, you know, and um, wrote Swords and Saints, a doctor's journey. Yeah, Robert, that's that was another life uh endeavor that I had to do. You know, I had to write the SEAL, SEAL Team Hell Week story because nobody was doing it, and I was able to. This one, if, over my 33 years as a doctor, I had so many amazing, life-changing experiences with being present at the birth of a new, new life, being present at the passage of another one, you know, dealing with the gunshot wounds and the wartime experiences and the, the challenges that all doctors at some time, in, you know, in their lives might be exposed to. And, and I would teach my medical students, I would teach my residents, and I would tell these same stories over and over again. And I thought to myself, I, they're going to die with me if I don't write them down. Mm -hmm. So you know, really out of necessity, I said, I'm going to write these down. I, again, one chapter at a time, one patient story at a time, one lesson at a time. I just started writing these stories that I'd been telling for years. And when, you know, put them all down, I went, ah, you know, that's a book. <laughs> I think I think this is what I wanted. And, and it's funny because my, my last chapter talks about, you know, departing at a time that I might not have departed had the system, you know, figured out a better way to 
to you know for to practice medicine to provide care to patients because doctors go to work every day wanting to take care of their patients you know people say oh you just do it for the money no you don't if it was for the money you'd do something else you know you do it to take care of patients when the system gets in the way of being able to do that the fun starts to be less fun so yeah. i so i get out at my peak while it's still you know reasonably fun and uh, and you know look for other exciting things to do well bob i think what i like about this is that you know like this podcast i tried to find a way to give back to the community that i loved and enjoyed and i think that's the same thing that you tried to do with swords and saints is you know give back and through your stories and and uh the your life memoir and everything you're really helping the that next generation understand you know what they're experiencing is not something new you know they're you know somebody else has already blazed those same trails this is how they came through those things or maybe there are different experiences that they can learn from that you experience that um, can really help them grow and mature so i am curious though you did the hell week are you then going to do the same thing for that span of career that's the the gap in between you know, of, of not just your time in, in SEALs teams, but also in Delta? So I don't think so. I've been asked that a number of times. You know, we want to know what happened. You know, you got to introduce these 11 men and you watched them enter their careers, but you don't know where they went. Well, I do. And their story might yet get told. Sadly, three of us have died. And and that's, uh, you know, that leaves my, my memoirs only to eight. But uh, it could happen, but what I'm doing now, and it, I just finished it, is my third book is going to be published very soon, which is a collection of letters from my great-great-grandfather in the Civil War, written to his wife, and there uh, I inherited them from my mom two years ago when she died, and she had spent the previous two years laboriously transcribing all these handwritten letters from a corporal clerk in Grant's headquarters during the Civil War. Wow. And all the letters begin, my dear Sarah, and he tells what's going on in the battles around him and the ships they were on and the transportation they're making and, you know, and, and how he hates officers and doesn't want to get promoted and, you know, all the things you'd expect a corporal to be saying. And, you know, and I, I finished it. My mom died a year before uh, this was finished and, and I got them all transcribed, just done it and gone back through and annotated all the officers' names and the battles and the forts and the ships. I had no idea how many ironclads there were, and I'm ashamed as a Naval Academy graduate, I, I know there was more than just the Monitor and the Merrimack, but he's naming them and who's getting on them and what units are going, you know? And did you know that one of the last battles of the Civil War was in Texas at, long after Lee had surrendered when the 45th Infantry Regiment colored went to Texas and forced the last holdout general to, sur to surrender to a colored unit. I God, don't know that I did, yeah. <laughs> me either. And you know that was deliberate. Yeah. He goes, hey, I know who we're going to send. <laughs> Make this last general, you know, surrender to the forces that we have, have honored us with their service. I just thought that. And I, no, really? Great granddad, thanks for telling me that. Yeah. Wow, what amazing things. I mean, I could see, you know, a movie kind of thing even coming out of this by just, again, one man's perspective, especially at a higher headquarters like he was, really sharing those stories back to his wife from a personal level. Well, it's a love story, you know. He, he wasn't married when he went to war and married her two and a half years into it and, uh, you know, and then came back soldiers sign on for a three-year term and he did his three years and 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 then switched to civilian clerk in grant's headquarters and came back and finished the war and he's talking to his wife about you know they're still shooting at us here you're probably wondering why i'm here and what i'm doing but you know i gotta make a living and we're married now so wow <laughs> clerk still makes enough money to survive it was it's just a fun 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 story and i know the civil war people will appreciate the history of it oh yeah most definitely any history buff will it enjoy and and uh you know enjoy reading that book and so what is have you come up with the title and you know when it's going to be published my working title is my dear sarah Le uh civil war letters from the front nice, nice. yeah well you always try his letters my dear sarah, my sarah yeah my Love dear sarah, civil war letters from the front 
when can we expect it? Do you have an idea, a timeline? Uh, yeah. uh, I would expect it'll be out in the next two to three months. Oh, nice. So like on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, normal it's places? Amazon and Kindle. Amazon and Kindle. Barnes & Noble, of course, has it. Uh, the All three of my books are self-published. They're not in bookstores. You have to go out and find them. But uh, my website that'll have all three books on it is swordsandseals.com. Okay. Swordsandseals.com. All three books will be there. Tell your friends. <laughs> That's how word gets out. All right. And I want to go back through the book titles just one more time because Six Days of Impossible, Navy Sail Hell Week, A Doctor's Look Back. And then the other book was Swords and Saints, A Doctor's Journey, which you just mentioned the website by the same name. And then, of course, this new book that you have coming out and uh, looking forward to seeing all of those out on your website. And, of course, finding those out at your local, um, you know, Amazon or Kindle or something site that you guys uh, want to go out there and purchase. Uh Bob, thanks so much for taking the time out to come on this podcast and share your journey, fascinating journey at that, which I'd love to see that book that's in between and more of the lessons learned, too, of just your experiences, you know, of in the transition, too, of just from the Navy and those experiences and then into the, the transition of the medical field and everything, which partly is told in Sword and Saints, but still, uh, it's that... Um, it's that journey, I think, that some people would be fascinated by. Uh, and, and the fact that you were willing to humble yourself and, and many times over throughout your career. Well, thank you. And, you know, realizing you're talking to a podcast audience, I forgot to mention that Audiobook picked up both of my first two books and hired professional actors to read both of the books into the audiobook system, available on your libraries and online. Oh, nice. Nice. So you didn't do the reading then? I did not. Okay. They had the pros for that. <laughs> they didn't like the voice or what was up with that? I didn't like the voice. Oh, you didn't like the voice. The okay. pros are much better at it. You know, it's so funny when you hear yourself uh, talk, you know, we, we sound totally different. So I, I yep. get it. You got a great radio voice. Yours is, you know, delightful. Mine, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, thanks again so much for telling your story. I hope people do go out there and uh, go to the Swords and Saints website and pick up some of these uh, books that we just described and learn a lot more about Bob and his journey. And uh, again, uh, look forward to having you on again so we can talk about that last book. Absolutely, Robert. And thank you for doing it.